0: Hello and thanks for listening to Practically Ranching episode 28. I'm Matt Perrier and today we get to visit with Sheremy Viator. Sheremy is originally from Louisiana. She now lives near Houston, Texas and she's lived and worked on various ranches in various regions across our great country. This episode will talk about the diversity of cowherd size in the nation. Uh, We'll talk about the diversity of scopes and of focus of all these different ranches that Jeremy has witnessed and worked for. We'll talk about the varying perspectives that today's consumer has about our beef industry. We'll talk about discipline of management and, and genetic selection. We'll talk about its relationship to ranch longevity and sustainability. We'll talk about how we best connect the dots of all of these different aspects of of ranches and of ranchers to hopefully build better beef and become more profit-oriented in our industry. Speaking of discipline, uh, many of you called me out to notice that I skipped an episode last week. Between our uh, post-sale follow-up and the bull deliveries and starting our fall AI program here at, uh, at Dale banks. I missed our first episode since we started this project back last late last May, early June. And, um, admittedly this may have stuck. So this little weekly podcast that we created may have just turned biweekly or every other week, definitely not twice a week. Uh, so whatever it is, That describes it. Uh, We will look forward to being back here the week prior to Christmas. And so God willing, we'll talk to you then. And I hope that you have a blessed Advent season. Enjoy that with your family. And as always, thanks for listening to Practically Ranching. Well, Jeremy, thank you for joining us today on Practically Ranching. Tell me where you are right this instant.
1: I am in Tomball, Texas and that would be if you thought about Houston as a clock, I would be at about 12 o'clock on the north side of Houston, um kind of on the edge of what used to be the country and as a growing suburb of Houston these days.
0: There are uh, there are plenty of those as you go around Houston or Denver or Kansas City or Pick your major metropolitan area, and I, I think that's probably the case.
1: Yeah, and you know, I found a little piece of heaven. I'm very lucky um, to where I'm located have a little bit of lease ground and some an older couple and a family that's multi-generational that they have um, a small home place that their families own since the 20s and uh or quite some time back and they are gonna they're determined to keep it that way until some of the um elder generation generational folks pass on and i get to live there so i have a little piece of heaven in the middle of uh all the suburbs
0: good good for you and and um, i'd say they're glad that somebody's there to keep it going and Looking somewhat like agriculture instead of uh, asphalt and concrete. Good. They are. Super deal. Well, before we get too far into it, um, give us all a little bit of history of Cherami and and what has uh, brought you full circle where you grew up and where you've worked professionally and and what has brought you to today in Tomball, Texas.
1: I have uh, had one heck of a, a ride is the best way to describe it. Um, I grew up in South Louisiana and did all the typical 4-h and showing cattle things that uh, most of us of my generation uh, you know did. And my parents were incredibly supportive. had an uncle who was a good cowman, and he and a gentleman named Paul Saint Blanc. Uh, started my love and kind of grew that uh, for the cattle business and beef business. And I ended up uh, on 4-H judging teams and just was real active, did all the usual kind of stuff. Decided I wanted to go to school to judge um, outside of Louisiana and ended up at a little junior college up in the Texas panhandle called Clarendon Junior College. Spent a few years up there and while I was there, uh, my judging team coach, Jerry Hawkins, introduced me to Minnie Lou Bradley, and we always joked around that um, he sent me to Minnie Lou on weekends to learn how to speak English. So I might have had just a little bit of a Cajun accent at that point. <laughs> <And> <laughs> from Clarendon, went to a and uh, From a and I did an internship in Washington, D.C. Uh, it was life-changing for me. I worked for a U.S. congressman for two years. A lot of folks don't even know that. Uh, these days and uh, spent some time doing, uh, had a state legislative gig for a while. And I got to just kind of got to missing the cow world. Uh, Went to grad school for a little while and then this job came up. Charles Crochet called me and said, hey, uh, would you come to work with me at this place called Camp Cooley Ranch? And I thought, you know, if i When I get done with grad school, that's my dream job. So I actually didn't finish grad school and went to work at Camp Cooley. And we had Angus and Brangus and Charlay cattle there. At the heyday of Camp Cooley, we sold about a 1,000 bulls annually. And I did everything from private treaty bull sales there to um, hay sales, I coordinated. We sold about a quarter million square bales a year. And then uh, kind of towards the end of my tenure there, I handled all the bull sales out west, and uh, I loved it because I would just go to California, Nevada, and drive around selling bulls, and, and that was awesome. Uh, after Camp Cooley, I went to Silver Spur Ranch. Uh, Silver Spur runs uh, a little over 15,000 commercial cows and then uh, have a set of registered cattle that were Angus and Charlet and Red Angus, and I was at Silver Spur several years um, coordinated their GAP and NHTC audits, all their um, all natural piece uh, on the audit side, coordinated the bull test. Um, We AI'd about anywhere from 2,500 to 3,000 heifers each summer, coordinated that. And uh, it was a fun ride there. And then, you know, there just comes a point in time where, uh, and I guess I should say along all of that, I'd been sending cows home or my mom had maintained the cows that we had. And I can remember there was a a winter when it was real icy in Texas. And my mom just said, I'm really getting tired of this. And she was taking care of of the cows that we had, just a little handful. And so I started looking for a job to come back to Texas, Um, had some opportunities to consult. And then this found, kind of fell into my lap A previous boss of mine, Joe Fuller, recommended me to Westway Feed Products, and I came back to Texas, and I've been with Westway for six years now. Um, They're the largest liquid feed manufacturer in the country, and it fits for me, kind of talking about comes full circle, because in South Louisiana, um, we're a multi-generational sugarcane family, sugarcane production family so the molasses end of it coming from sugar cane i understood that so it works and i live like i said earlier in the introduction on the north side of houston uh my mom is at college station on the north side and we run cows on lease places from tomball to college station and that's kind of a uh, down and dirty summary of um the last i say 20 or so years matt
0: that's uh that's a A pretty good summary and kind of a who's who of the beef industry. Who was your congressional internship with in D.C.?
1: Well, it was actually a Democrat. I interned with Congressman Jim Chapman, and I can tell you that at that point, I honestly didn't know the difference between a Democrat and a Republican when I interned. You know, um, in
0: some ways, I would say those were the good old days. Absolutely.
1: I may get tomatoes
0: thrown at me from every pickup truck going down the road right now, but uh, I was curious because, you know, with names like Paul St. Blanc and Jerry Hawkins and Minnie Lou Bradley, Charles Crochet, um, Joe Fuller, I mean, you have gotten an opportunity to have 18 or 20 um, kind of many who's who internships um, and do it professionally through the last couple decades, and and um, you can learn a lot from those folks. I would I would say. Uh,
1: absolutely, I, I sure could. <laughs> absolutely, I am who I am because of all of those people. Um, by um, <laughs> by fault of my own or not fault of my own, um, the character building opportunities that I've had. Were large, and and, you know that internship when I interned with Jim Chapman, that was during that when um, NAFTA, the original writing of of composing of NAFTA was going on. So I got the experience of uh, because of he was in a, a large dairy district, you know I learned a lot about the dairy industry at that point. And then the next step in my congressional tenure was with another Democrat, Congressman Chet Edwards. And Chet, I always kidded with him and told him he was a closet Republican. Um, And he had a a very strong ag base in Central Texas. And when you spend time in Washington DC as a young person, especially a naive kid that has an agriculture background, it was really eye-opening to to have that opportunity. And I encourage kids every day now to to get some type of legislative uh, experience in their uh, college career if possible.
0: Yeah. It, as ugly as it sometimes is, the, the old line making laws is kind of like making sausage. Nobody wants to see that process, but it is pretty educational and, Absolutely. um, it makes, makes some things, make some sense. And I would say that today's scenario there in DC is probably significantly different than when, when you were there. What, what years were you there, Shermie?
1: I would have been there 93 or actually spring of 94 and then i worked for chet edwards about 95 to 97 ish kind of kind of guesstimating there if remembering dates and it was the culture was extremely different because you could at that point in time as an intern and even as a staffer you could go to dinner or go to lobbyist events or socials and be with folks across the aisle and it wasn't a big deal and today it's a huge deal the if you you know our crowd today we're a very conservative value uh, crowd and it's just a whole different set of values and how the world is viewed in the quote woke crowd or younger crowd and there's not as much across the aisle socialization as there was when I was there.
0: Yep, yep. It's um, it's sad to see. And heck, thanks to and not that this is what drove it, but it couldn't have helped. Um, thanks to the campaign reform rules and things like that. I don't think many of them can even can even have one of those dinners if anybody that is a lobbyist type or a yeah, PAC or anything else is involved. They have they have so many rules there that they don't they don't even get together socially anymore, I don't think. Ab- uh, and
1: absolutely. So, and you well. know one one of the things that was important in my tenure there was whether it be NAFTA or the ninety five Farm Bill, um, and at that time Charlie Stenholm would have been on the Democratic side and then you would sure. have had some really strong Republicans that we met as teams from our staff members and work together to on legislation or even constituent concepts back in the districts of what was it that we needed to do and you had that across aisle conversation so it is very different today matt
0: so in that same vein you've lived i think primarily in rural areas with the exception of dc and now of course Tomball 30 years ago would be different than what it is today, but what have you seen change in terms of the rural versus urban-suburban communication development, their understanding of us, our understanding of them? How how does that affect both today and and what you've seen in in production ag throughout your, your tenure?
1: Encroachment. Um, would be a a big piece that's very different uh, of just what used to be ag areas. Um, You'll see suburban areas just growing and growing and growing and closer together. Uh, The internet, I think has probably driven unfactual or the opportunity for incorrect information as much as it has provided opportunity for factual information and we unfortunately in agriculture tend to bury our head in the sand and think that there's not uh, problems with uh, information that's not correct about agriculture out there or that the consumer is wrong and when you live in a metropolitan area And you work in, I work in the woodlands and you begin to understand and have a whole different perspective about there's way more folks who are out there that are consumers that make buying decisions that they don't understand our world and probably aren't going to unless we help them to understand and I think that's a growing number exponentially.
0: Yeah, there's no doubt about it. I mean, we hear 2% involved in animal agriculture or in, in production agriculture, farming and ranching. I think today it's probably edging closer to 1%. It's going to continue. Um, you've seen a lot of different folks try it through the years, through checkoff programs, through things like the the GAP and NHTC programs you were working with there at Silver Spur. What's the best way that we as producers can tell that story in a way that makes sense to our consumers, isn't so data and info heavy that they lose interest before we even get to the meat of the matter, so to speak, um, and, and who needs to tell that message? Who, who, who does that the best or how do we do it the best?
1: I guess that's a kind of a, a multi pointed question and I offer folks of all ages that in this concept, learn three to five or five to 10 facts about the beef industry that are conversation starters, fact-based that you can have a discussion about. Um, if you're on an airplane, if you're at your doctor's office, if you're a kid that's in high school whatever your your stage is in life and and be willing to have that discussion you know you go to your doctor and he's talking about well you need to cut down on red meat well have a have some facts in your memory bank of the you know beef in terms of being high in iron and zinc etc cetera, etc cetera. or if you're somewhere and somebody's talking about cattle are bad for the environment you know know some facts about upcycling and how catalytic uh, you know create or or convert forages into protein and if you have just three to five good facts be willing to, to have that conversation and and i find that as much as anything is if you are willing to have that conversation in a very professional demeanor not being argumentative you can have a conversation and there's times where I'll have that conversation with someone and you come to a point and you just say, okay, we agree to disagree. I just, I'm glad that you were willing to listen to what I had to say. And I think there's probably more times than not that you plant a seed for somebody to to walk away and think about those things. So that's one thing is to learn um, just facts and kind of keep it in your memory bank. And like I said, it doesn't matter if you're a 65-year-old rancher and you're know you going to see your preacher or your priest. You're going to see folks when you go buy a truck at the truck dealership. You're going to see somebody when you go to the bank. You're going to talk to your doctor. All of those are opportunities to have that conversation. And I think that we have to start having those conversations or else, and I say this when I judge cattle shows, if we don't have those conversations until our facts and our story, the other side is gonna tell a story that we probably don't like their version of the story. So that's kind of one point. And then the next piece is, is I've selected what I feel are tomorrow's consumers and begun to focus on an age group um, to present information and factual information to encourage them to be beef consumers of the future. Because I think that if, you know, and that group is basically kids in school and high school kids predominantly. Uh, because I think those kids are influenceable and I hope to be somebody that lays a path of influence towards our direction. So that, that's kind of the point that I guess, Matt, for me, that is know your facts and then. For me personally, I picked a group to focus on.
0: How do you get to those high school kids? How how are you doing that?
1: Me personally, um, we're doing a, a clinic. Uh, started it back in 2020, and do I've done a couple of these a year, and I, we call it not your ordinary cattle clinic and it's not in competition with say Sullivan Show Supply Stock Show U it's very different where they focus on fitting and their and hair aspect i focus on in, instead showmanship and i use that as a vehicle to get young people to attend but what they don't know is the real reason why they're there is that yes we'll spend half a day talking about showmanship and those kids showing but we also talk about bqa and why you know how we handle vaccines are is important and how to give the shots correctly etc and then we talk about beef advocacy um, we'll talk go in and do some sessions about just the same thing that I just said about knowing you know five to ten facts about the beef industry uh, when time allows we'll do some role-playing um, where if somebody meets up with somebody that that maybe isn't a believer in the beef industry how to handle that situation so What starts out is they come to a showmanship clinic, but I hope they leave as a believer and promoter in the beef industry and understanding that they're a part of the beef industry. And you have to understand where I'm at, Matt, there's probably several hundred 4-H and FFA groups within, I don't know, 150 miles of me. And if we could touch even just a small percentage of those to get those kids thinking about, you know, because a majority of them aren't going to be involved in agriculture, but they are going to be consumers.
0: For sure. And, and that's getting an opportunity to open that door and have the conversation is, is probably the toughest part. And, you know, you go back to your first, your first item there and being willing to have that conversation and do it in a professional enough manner that you don't get PO'd and, and, Rip somebody's head off for being a vegan. And that's where I think we get as a group of producers. That's where we get intimidated the most because we, number one, don't have a lot of PR and media training. We don't, we may not, we may go for days or weeks at a time and not see anybody outside of the guy or gal that we work with or live with or family or whatever. And so, We get into that situation. Plus, we're super passionate about that. Was that was
1: what I was going to interject? Yeah, that's probably the biggest
0: driver, right?
1: We're we're passionate. You're talking about our livelihoods,
0: yeah, and and you're talking and 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 our parents and grandparents and multi generations of livelihoods. Exactly.
1: You know, kids and grandkids, the future. And so, heck yeah, we get passionate and we get fired up about it. But if you have that conversation in a tone. And it's everything from your body language to being factual and being willing to, you know, ask questions back and forth and have a dialogue about, well, why, why are you a vegan? What is your preference? Well, did you know, such and such or such and such and have a fact based conversation without becoming argumentative? I get a lot further, um, down the road. And you know, there's, like I said, there's quite a few times where we just agree to disagree, but you know what? Hey, I hope you have a great day. I really enjoyed visiting with you. And I leave that person thinking, you know, that's somebody in the beef industry that is a decent human being and never had an argument. And I think that's really, really important.
0: Yeah, the other the other part of that I think is if you can get them to ask you the questions, even if they get fired up, even if they try to trap you or you know, use some false accusation that they heard from AOC or on CNN exactly. or whatever the case may be, when they start asking us the questions, and give us an opportunity to address all of the misconceptions that they may already have from wherever. I think that's where the real value is, but getting we, that conversation started is the toughest part.
1: Then we win at nine times yeah, out of yeah. 10, because a lot of their information is incorrect right, and you right. can provide information. Um, and I love being in airports. That's probably, um, I'm not somebody that wants to get on a plane and have a conversation, but you know, if you're sitting there in an airplane and you have a, you know, what Angus Journal or Jover's Journal or whatever, you know, print media that you're, I carry lots with me just for that reason, and they'll sure. eventually ask a question. What well, do you ranch, or do you have cattle, or something? You know, seven out of ten times, it's a conversation starter, and you don't have to have a hour long conversation while you're on a plane. Just two or three minutes and leave it alone.
0: Yeah, I think that's a good way to do it and and uh, there, yeah, there's there's a million different ways to do it, but I think the first step is just having the the opportunity or or finding the opportunity and having the guts to to have that conversation and I applaud you for doing so. Uh switching gears just a little bit, kind of along the same lines though between big cities and little towns that are sometimes vastly different. Um, You've worked for some pretty big ranches and now would be operating a probably small to mid-sized ranch. Um, Are there the same or more differences between big ranch culture and small single family part-time farmer ranch as Compared to big cities in, in rural America.
1: So I have this conversation quite often with, with Mary Lou Bradley, and Mary Lou gives me a lot of grief over being a weekend warrior now. And it, it is exponentially harder to be a small producer than it was when I worked for the large ranches. Because, I mean, just economies of, of scale, you know, when you order mineral by the truckload or you, your opportunities of how you order vaccines or just, there's so many things that you do on scale that are very different, um, here and everything from labor to land cost, uh, marketing calves, it's all a different mindset and I've had to adjust dramatically. But I also look at it as an opportunity because there's so many people that if you look at the numbers that own less than fifty head. So I, I think that's um if anything, I, I choose to make it a positive in my mind. I've kinda of had to justify it I guess.
0: Yeah, I I actually just looked this up and um now these these numbers are a little dated. They're from USDA um Statis- National Ag Statistics Service, and I think they must do it every five years, and two's survey is just taking place, and so I'm sure we, we may not see it for three or four years. But this would be from 2012 and 2017, and they, they weren't a lot different, honestly. But uh, the long and short of it was cows in herds less than 100 head, make up 46 to, I think, 48, no, actually 44 to 46 percent. So less than half of the cow herd, by number of cows, are in groups of 1 to 99 head. Absolutely. And and yet the owners of those that just under half would make up 91 percent of operations. So and most 9 of- percent. Oh, go ahead.
1: And most, and most of those owners don't make a living off that cow herd, and their time to manage them is limited.
0: Right. And their time to not just manage them, but, you know, get professional development and continuing ed and be QA certified and all these other deals, read the Drover's Journal or the Angus Journal or whatever the case may be. Um, so then those 9% of operations that have – over a hundred head um, make up fifty-four percent of the cows, and they break it down further. Um, this was pretty interesting to me that the hundred head to five hundred head—they call it hundred to four hundred ninety-nine—seven percent of the operations in total, and thirty-six percent of the cows reside right. in those hundred to five hundred heads, and then the five hundred plus are like a percent and a half of operations and they make up just shy of twenty percent of the cows. So, so, so my question to you before we get to a bunch more dynamics of how big versus little are different, and you already said a lot of the obvious ones is is economies of scale and, and the ability to, you know, differentiate your labor and things like that. Where do you see this going uh, in terms of the next five 10, 25 years as far as big operations, and, and, and I I would even break this down and say, let's say the 1,000 cow operations and bigger, as opposed to not just the 1 to 99 head, but those 100 to 500 head herds. Where, how do you see those sorting out in the next, next couple if, decades, I guess?
1: If you drew a circle around large metropolitan areas, say, if you started at 50 miles outside the, the nucleus and then you went a hundred miles, the, that number of a hundred or less is going to continue to grow would be just because of land availability. And those larger operations that are a thousand head or more, they're going to become focused and located in areas where it's harder to develop and it's more arid ground perhaps or it's just not going to be feasible to put a housing development down but in those areas where it is feasible I think we're going to see the numbers of small operations continue to grow at a rapid rate and so it's kind of a divergence I don't want to say the big get bigger but I'm going to say there's going to be a spread that I think it's going to become more and more challenging that that hundred to 500 head operation to survive is going to be the real challenge because that guy that runs a hundred or less is probably going to have a day job. And then that guy that runs, you know, over a hundred to 500, he's trying to make a living on just cows. Versus that guy that runs 600 and you know, thousand, 1500, 2500, he's going to be out somewhere further away from a metropolitan area and has the opportunities to market, to buy, etc., in a different buying uh, level, buy and sell at a different level.
0: Yeah, I, I don't disagree with you. Um, I would love to, but. As I have talked with neighbors, as I have talked with customers, as I have seen, even in the last couple of years, and I think I've had this conversation on here before, it may have been with Joe Goggins there in Angus podcast a couple weeks ago, but I'm amazed at how many of those in that segment you're talking, I would even say 200 to 500 head, that were making a living for a family off of the cow herd or predominantly off of the cow herd who just over the last two or three years have said you know man this is a lot of work this is a 52 week of year gig Um, if I'm in a decent farming area I can terminate this grass or this fescue and plant beans and look what I could make as a farmer or I can run short-season grazing cattle for three months in the summer and, and make a pretty good living and do something else for the other nine months. I, it's amazing to me how many people, not necessarily retirement age, but have, my age-ish, yeah, who are at least considering, or if not have already made a change away from cows and into something else. And, and when, uh, it may still be in agriculture, but it's when not cow, son cow. or
1: When their son or daughter want to come home and be involved in the operation, their diversification has generated the opportunity for a lot of creativity on on new profit centers. That's the other thing is we've had to become creative.
0: And have you seen that creativity be in addition to the cow herd or replace a portion of said cow herd?
1: I'd say in addition to um, yeah. a lot that of one I a, like. <laughs> yeah, a lot of us have a really bad cow habit. and, and <laughs> <you> know, <laughs> Well, all I those lo-
0: 50 cow and down. Exactly. Let's, you know, let's be I, honest. That's what that is.
1: I, I love Western culture and Western values. And that's part of my passion for the beef business is the value system. And I'm right. not willing to, to give it up. I mean, I, honestly... I could quit raising cattle and have a pretty easy gig, you know, maybe have a a house on a lake and a boat and do those things. But I, I refuse to give it up because I truly love raising cattle and the value system and the culture. And I think that is where a lot of people, if they have that same passion, might not be willing to let go and may be willing to become more creative to be able to continue on. I don't think we're, status quo is not going to be successful going
0: forward. So how do we as a beef industry balance if, and I don't see this happening to this extreme, and I hope and pray that it doesn't for my family's sake, but if we go to the extreme of everybody either being 50 head and down as a side gig that makes them feel like they are connected to the Western way of life, or 1,000 and up, or 5,000 and up, or whatever the the level may be, and we lose this bread and butter that I said right now makes up 7% of the operations, but well over a third of the cow herd in that 100 to 500 head operation, the bread and butter of most cow country in rural America. Um, If that becomes zero operations, how do we make the beef industry work when we've got a a large percentage of the operations raising a small percentage of the cows and then a few great bigs that have got control and have consolidated and have got control of two-thirds of the cow herd.
1: So what happens when this beef on dairy idea begins to be a supply mechanism that flattens the Beef industry seasonal supply, and those critters are made and coming out of dairies that you know we've got to keep those dairy cows in production. Is that a dynamic that plays into what you just described?
0: That's I think it could. I mean, I I don't know how many dairy cows you know, unless uh, you know those folks are making more on their dairy cross calves that are half beef influenced than they were when they were straight Holstein calves, obviously, because there's more value in the beef industry chain. But most of those straight Holstein calves were still making it to market. And the real driver of profitability, at least today, the real driver of profitability is that cow that they're milking. And so I don't know that we see, I think, I've had this and I can't I didn't commit it to memory. But I think we're somewhere around fifteen or sixteen percent of the fed cattle population that is of dairy origin. And that's still about the same now. It's just half dairy, uh, the other half being beef as far as the steers. I don't I don't know that we see I may be wrong. I don't know if we see that move to a third. But like hope- you said, it does it does level that ebb and flow of your typical born in the spring, weaned in the late fall, backgrounded, come to the fed market in mid to late summer where we have these big swings of volume and have to work with, in some respects from a supply chain standpoint, that's maybe not a bad thing that we can spread that supply out thanks to some of these dairy cross cattle coming through. But it does. I mean, there's no doubt about it. Today's dairy industry is much more consolidated than what today's beef industry has been. Uh, so that you're right. That and throws, I, and a, I don't throws like, a wrench into as well.
1: I don't like thinking about that as a model. I, I really don't. Um, but I, I think that we are going to have to find ways to become more profit-oriented. And is it, you know, focusing on those traits, you know, fertility, feet, udders, and being ultra disciplined um, to create those cattle that maintain and stay in our production systems so that we are more efficient. Or is it that, you know, cutting corners on finding other cost mechanisms where we reduce cost or are, for me, it's trying to find value of, You know, um, I went and talked to a restaurant uh, about, hey, you guys had a sign up that you sell local beef in your barbecue restaurant. Who are you sourcing your feeder cattle from for that? And the the guy said, well, as a matter of fact, I'm looking for somebody. And I said, well, man, I have I got right now (laughs)
0: because right now I'm calling it local and I'm buying it from. Dodge sale City, Kansas, mark. like everybody exactly. else.
1: Exactly. Yeah, you know. <laughs> so I think thinking outside the box, and even these clinics that I that I talked about doing, I don't do them for sport. There is a a, a mechanism there to create a little bit of income to support my cow habit, and sure. so um, I think you, we're going to have to do some things differently and not rely on just the cow to generate in some of those small operations now big big operations it's a different concept
0: so how is it different because i was just getting ready to go there i mean are all the big operations that you have worked for worked with are they all as you said finding ways to become more profit oriented
1: before we go to the profit-oriented part, let me give you an example on just the sheer production end. So, okay. you're you're extremely active in BIF, and yep. I, I'm I mean I'm a passionate believer in BIF and its concepts, and I am a big believer in, in big contemporary groups. That was one of the things that Camp Cootie Ranch, Ken Hughes, was I mean just adamant about. We didn't sell females till they were yearling beyond that that was a big deal and then to turn around and have to change my little weekend cow operation that mom and i run and sell weaned heifer calves as show heifer prospects totally goes against everything against big contemporary groups that i'm so passionate about but it's a matter of survival
0: So it's a- as a buddy of mine says, they're never worth more than they are as a ball and calf.
1: Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> which, <laughs> which
0: I hate because I'm like it- Ken Hughes. I don't want to split them up until we've right. gotten all the data collected.
1: Yes. I mean, it hurts my pride because that's yep. what I was brought up on. You know, Bill and Minnie Lou Bradley and Ken Hughes and, you know, Jerry Keneally. Those are the people that were my heroes of this is how you did it. And when you change that mantra and you understand you're breaking the mold of what you're supposed to be doing, it hurts. (laughs) But back on the, what was your question on the large scale? Well,
0: you, you made mention of finding ways to become more profit-oriented, and I agree. That's one of the reasons we have this podcast, because I think that's what we have to do as as beef industry participants. We can only rest on that Western culture and way of life and passion and love for this business so long before we have to say it's still a business and we've still got to make a profit. And my question as we talk about this extremes of cow herd size ultra small ultra big and nothing in the middle is that most of those ultra small producers and and i hate to generalize because you have just talked about how you all are a smaller side gig type of herd and you're wanting to be sure that you're profit oriented and that's why you're doing some of the things you have to do but by and large, a lot of those herds aren't necessarily there to make money. They don't want to lose too much, but they're not just driven by profit. The no, big ones it. that you've worked for, are they strictly driven or are they largely driven by profit? Or is that also a side gig for some of them as a byproduct of land ownership?
1: Yes and yes and no and no.
0: <laughs> okay. That, it's not always the same, huh?
1: Right. So so both Silver Spur and Camp Cooley owners had other income. And, but with that said, those ranch entities were expected to run in a corporate business mindset. And, you know, we operated under a budget. We operated under specific expectations of performing within that budget. And I think those, the reason those operations are still there is because their leadership did just that. They are managing to perform to budget expectations. Now, as a small producer, I would like to think that more of us are looking to do that. I don't know that we are though. And, and part of it is that I've learned down here is people just don't know a lot of times I have a neighbor as an example, and I just said, Hey, instead of leaving the bull out year round, let me teach you about a calving season. And when they had all their calves born within 45 days this year, I mean, it was like a big deal. Well, to us who have been in a, you know, if you're in a commercial or registered situation where you're trying to be really efficient, you're going to shorten up that cabin season, pull the bulls, and, and you have a plan and a direction. And I think that's the missing piece in a lot of the small operations is they don't have a plan. But in a large operation, you have strategy, and you have direction, and you have a budget. And all of those things coincide into one, and that's how you operate.
0: Yeah, that was one of the uh, learning opportunities that I had when I worked down there in, in Texas, New Mexico, with the Angus Association was going to A and M's Beef Cattle Short Course, and uh, the first time I heard about it, I'm like, they're gonna, they're gonna have this, what I would term basic remedial type of program, and get. I don't even remember what it was like a thousand people or maybe 1500. I don't remember. It's crazy how many people came to that thing and they grubbed it up. And it was that same exact conversation that you were talking about having with your neighbor. So Um, so I think about, think about pulling your bulls after 60 or 90 days. And and, uh, I'll give a shout out
1: to to Dr. Jason clear at beef cattle shark course. And and they have between 1500 and 2000 people each year at A&M. It's the first week in, in August usually. And, I give Jason a lot of grief about, hey, Jason, let's be more progressive on the agenda. And he's made a lot of changes and and added a lot of genomic components, et cetera, et cetera. But there's always that component of very basic nutrition and ranch management and accounting and those kind of things, and people flock to them. And TSCRA does the same thing down here. And it's those smaller producers that just need an opportunity to learn. So it's there as an educational opportunity.
0: Yeah. And on the flip side of that, those big ranches, that's one thing that I've always respected about them, whether I agree with the way they breed cattle or the way they market cattle or the way they hire labor or whatever the case may be. um, Those folks, regardless of if they made their first million or billion in the beef industry or not, they have a pretty sharp pencil and Absolutely. they expect that that business to be exactly that and you know yeah they'll they'll lose money for a little while but not for very long before they start making significant changes
1: one of the biggest things that I, my takeaway in those large ranches is it wasn't that it was Bessie or Petunia or Pearl as your cows it was, W-9, <laughs> yeah. it was W944 or 5, 535 W3 etc and those were your employees. And this is something that Minnie Lou Bradley really hammered into me in my early tenure with her and with Bill Bradley as well. But your cows are your employees. And if you run a business, would you allow an employee to not show up or to be subpar in their job? And the answer, and and I ask this question a lot of times to business producers that are businessmen that I work with in a consulting role or just helping, you know, would you allow employees to not do their job? And the answer is always, well, heck no. Well, then why do you have that cow still there that is on an 18-month calving interval? She needs to go. And that kind of discipline, uh, I think for me, I'm going to hold to it, whether I have five cows or 10 cows or 50 cows or 500 cows is fertility and udder and feet and those basics are going to maintain.
0: Amen to that. I think I heard this quote attributed to Mr. Bob Funk at Express Ranches. His line always has been, hire slow and fire fast. And he was, of course, talking about personnel, probably at Express Temp Services or wherever the case may be. But I think the same thing goes as as Bradley's talked about. Yeah, if your cows are your employees, which they should be, don't wait around to fire them when they don't get bred. Don't wait around to fire them when they've got a little foot issue or disposition issue or whatever else, fire fast and hire slow. And, and uh, as you're picking and those replacement harder, heifers, make sure you know. Yeah.
1: It's harder to do that as a small producer because you are around those cattle and a, on a more one-on-one basis. I can tell you that yep. it is exponentially harder to, to be disciplined as I know we should be because when you're on, a, on the big operations, she's a number, she, you know, you have your palpating cows. You run, you palpate 350 cows today. You go in and buy on the calls and opens, and then you have a truckload of or a group of cull opens, and then you have all the bred cows. Boom, they're gone. On your calls, they're done. And so, it's that is one thing that is different when you talk about scale of operation.
0: Yeah, and I think that those numbers and looking at things as as an as a number, as an employee, um, it's for me anyway, there's no other way to make those selection decisions that you have to make if you do it any other way. I mean, I, my son Lyle gets pretty excited as, as we go to culling an open female that was the number one dollar C cow in the herd, and I don't even look at it. I can't. Um, right. She goes to town if she's open and and no questions asked, no excuses made, and uh, I mean it's just driving this kid nuts. But if I looked at it, I would make wrong decisions. I would go and give her one more chance, or I would try to make some kind of excuse because of what she supposedly is genetically capable of when she didn't do the job that everybody else did, and she's going to have an opportunity down the road somewhere else that has a Big Mac or whatever. Uh, but but yeah, It's got to be numbers.
1: If you study long-tenured long ranches, whether it be registered or commercial, one of the commonalities of those long-tenured operations is discipline. Yep. When you sit back and you look at those cattle operations that have been there, and I'm going to bring this around to sustainability for just a second, it is... You know, sustainability is a mantra that a lot of folks talk about, et cetera. But we actually have some sustainability concepts that we have in the beef industry been practicing all of our lives. And it's things like, you know, call the open cows, match your cow to your environment, all of those kind of things. But when you look at those really long tenured operations that are sustainable, it's discipline.
0: Yeah, I couldn't agree more, and I had to write that one down because I've heard more of these sustainability discussions and debates than I would care to even admit, and I think those types of discussions from a producer standpoint always come into that, but hearing someone put it like you did, that the discipline of long-term sustainable ranches is what makes them exactly that, sustainable. And that discipline is, like you said, in in selection and culling. That discipline is in cattle selection and genetic selection. That discipline is in uh, using your resources in a very effective, efficient manner and stewarding those resources. Because if you're not disciplined, You don't do those things. You just burn through the hay. You you burn through the topsoil. You do whatever because you're not worried about the next generation. Uh, But yeah, that that's discipline goes hand in hand with it. Yeah,
1: if you're disciplined and match your cows' energy requirements to your production system, you're gonna your cows are gonna breed up better. You're gonna you know the whole thing is hand in glove. When you're disciplined about making those decisions, when you're in sync with nature or in sync with being disciplined and your eye on being sustainable, it all comes together. And, And there's a whole lot more there that we actually do in the beef business that we don't realize or don't verbalize it maybe in ways that we could or should be doing because we've done it for a long time.
0: That brings us back full circle to our first topic, and that was how do we explain and tell the story to a group of neighbors in suburban and urban cities across this nation? How do we verbalize what it is we've been doing? How do we put that into a context that they get? Um, And I think, you know, words like discipline and sustainability and legacies and and efficiency and matching energy needs to the environment and working with Mother Nature, all these things, I think they resonate. They make sense to these folks much better than EPDs and adjusted 205-day weights and processing cattle and implanting cattle and all these things that quite often we probably get into the weeds before we even realize.
1: percent uh, with, 90%, with 90% of the consumers that are concerned about sustainability or animal welfare, all of those issues that are, are hot topics, they just want to know, hey, are you doing the right thing? Are you taking care yep. of the land? Are you taking care of the critters? And we... Because that's, as we talked about earlier, generational turn. Those are things that are important to us. Those are things that we're passionate about. And then just like you said, it's being willing to have that conversation about those things. Because that's all that they, those consumers want to know when it comes down to it is, are you doing the right thing by the land? Or are you doing the right thing by the critters? And yep. generally we are.
0: Yeah, without a doubt. Um, and, and granted, there's going to be bad apples in every bunch, I suppose, but um, I don't care if somebody has 20 cows or 20,000 cows. The bulk of us are doing what's right for the land, and as you said, for the critters, and uh, quite often, as we've learned from some of these GAP-certified programs, as we've learned from some of these beef checkoff-funded surveys with consumers, what they want to know is, do we care? Do Absolutely. we care about the resources and the environment? Do we care about the cattle? And um, is this more than strictly a profit-driven business? It's got to be part of it. That financial piece of sustainability has to be there or we don't survive to go to the next generation. But it's so much more than that. And that's why we do it. That's why instead of having that lake house and, and boat, that's why you have several dozen cows or several hundred cows and and that connection to your ancestors and the land and the Western way of life. That's, that's why you do it. Cause you care.
1: Absolutely. And you know, Matt, just kind of bring things to a close here of, of I think one of the things that for me, I had to learn to be willing to have the hard discussions or be willing to have any discussion with the person who is ultimately my customer and that's a consumer. And living closer to a big metropolitan area has really driven that home for me. Um, I've kind of found purpose in trying to have those conversations with my customers, your customers, our customers. And we as an industry are gonna have to become more and more willing to do that. Because like I said early on, If we don't have those discussions with those folks, somebody else is going to have that discussion and we may not like their side of the conversation. So we have to not bury our head in the sand and think it's, you know, that we don't have to have those conversations. I think it's imperative that we have those conversations, whether we're a kid in high high school or we're somebody that's a rancher that's 75 years old. Got to be willing to talk about it with folks who are not involved in day-to-day agriculture production.
0: Yep, I couldn't agree more, and it's going to take all of us. It's going to take the high school kids. It's going to take the 70-year-olds, and, and uh, we all have a different group of folks that with whom we deal, whether it be through family or church or connections outside of rural America, And some of us have got more than others frankly Um, but but that is one good thing and I think that you mentioned from the outset some of the misinformation on the internet is is one of the sharpest edges that we have to address Uh, but it also can be a benefit we can use it uh, in the right way to to tell the story and I think more and more people um, are doing that every day and and I know The younger you are the easier it is to do that within our industry but uh but yeah i i think what you're doing there is um is huge and and the benefits that you've had from seeing and learning from so many leaders in our industry in all areas all breeds all sizes all regions really of the country um is a huge benefit for you and and we just appreciate what it is you're doing and still sharing with all of us so we can continue to grow
1: Well, it's been fun to visit with you. And, you know, I have um, kind of a, I guess you call it a slogan or a tagline or something um, that I use on everything. And it's just called building, period, better, period, beef. And what that stands for is um, building tomorrow's leaders, better cattle, and beef for all.
0: Well, I can't close it out any better than that, Jeremy. I like it a lot, and um, you just wrote your own title on the last few seconds of the podcast, and there's there's uh, no more fitting conclusion. So thank you so much for being with us uh, today, and uh, we'll continue to keep up building better beef.
1: Sounds great. Take care. Appreciate it. Keep up on your end. Awesome job on the podcast and what you're doing, Matt.
0: All right. Appreciate it a bunch. Thanks for joining us for Practically Ranching, brought to you by Dale Banks Angus. If you enjoyed the podcast, heck, even if you didn't, help us improve by leaving a comment with your review wherever you heard us. And if you want to listen again, click subscribe and catch us next week. God bless, and we look forward to visiting again soon.